twinnies. It's uh, almost a phenomenon to see that many twins gathered. It's like a twin convention. It's just, I felt like, you know, I was running a little late this morning, as is my tendency, and I was very confused when I came in because of the twin situation, and I thought, that Greek yogurt was bad. I mean, it was bad because it's sour and awful, but it was especially bad because I was seeing, you know, double, but everything's under control. The twins have dispersed, and... I'm just happy to be with you guys. I love preaching here. I was supposed to preach this morning at the women's ministry at Grace Community Church. It's called Every Woman's Grace, Every Woman's Grace. I once accidentally called it Angry Woman's Grace. And it, there's, a, there's a sister organization called Every Korean Woman's Grace, and I once accidentally called that, every, uh, well, you know, Angry Korean Woman's Grace. And so it's always been scary to preach there ever since then. So, because there's a reason I call it that. <laughs> but this environment, I love it. I love speaking to college students. And when Pastor Harry asked me to talk about what do you wish you knew when you were in college, that rewound my life a while back. And it reminded me of my 10-year stint at the University of New Mexico, go Lobos. And first thing that came to mind is, should have done that in four. <laughs> it was kind of the first thing I thought of. And then I thought, you know, what, what, what else, what else? I mean, there just, there was a flood of things I would tell my former self. Uh, I would have told 18-year-old Austin T. Duncan, Duncan, Get your wisdom teeth out. Don't wait till you're 35. It will hurt you so deeply. It will take you months to heal. 18-year-olds, I mean, you could, you could cut their arm off and just grow back. You guys are like starfish. I mean, you just your recuperative properties are phenomenal. So I thought, you know, I, I, I'd give him some dental advice. Like, you know, don't, don't wait. You'll, you'll pay later. I warned myself about my 1979 Jeep Cherokee that I bought. I'm not that old. It was old. Uh, but it was spray-painted in olive color. I bought it for 800 bucks. My friends mockingly called it the green machine. I really wish I had that 800 bucks back. Not, nothing good ever came of the green machine. It's somewhere on the Navajo Reservation in New Mexico right now. <laughs> if you ever see it when you're on the Navajo, just remember me the green machine. You know, I would, have, I would have done more things with my hair. I would have. You know, when people with hair in the ocean, then they go, and it does this thing. I would have done that like every day. I, I didn't know how little time we'd have together. I think of more serious stuff, too, occasionally. I would have married my wife 10 years earlier than I did. That, that should have been, no, no, it was, that was like an awe of pity in my, you know, <laughs> you poor suckers, I hope what that meant. 
I, I would have. I, I wish I would have been discipled more when I was 18. Uh, I wish I would have sought out older, wiser men in my life. Uh, I wish I would have had a higher standard of, of purity. I wish I took holiness more seriously when I was 18. I, I look back and, and I do feel a sense of regret. I think everyone does that. Whatever age you are, you can look back and hindsight has this incredible ability of showing us exactly what we should have done. But I also see the grace of God in my life and the college years, right in the middle of that decade I like to refer to as my college years, I was encountering a theology that changed my life. Uh, you see, I was raised with kind of an insipid, man-centered conception of God, a Jesus who would do anything for me, a gospel that was for me. I didn't understand the glory of God in Christ. I didn't understand what it meant that Jesus Christ is supreme. And I didn't understand the implications of that for my own life and for my holiness and for the decisions that I would make. I didn't understand how understanding and applying the doctrine of the sovereignty of Christ, his magnificence, his excellency over all things would have implications for the choices that I made, the people that I hung around, the big life course decisions that were before me. You are at a place in your life where you can find tremendous opportunity to be discipled, to be directed towards Christ, to get wisdom and find it. Or you're at a point in your life where you're at some kind of intersection where you will make bad choices and you'll pay for those choices. And by God's grace, you'll, you'll learn from those choices. I mean, I wish my life would have been more connected to the church than it was. But when I think about it, when I think about all the things, it really comes back to something that I think a lot of college students struggle with. And it's, it's knowing who they are. Maybe that sounds a little psychological to you, but let me fill it out. I wish I would have known who I was then. If I could have lived in light of the knowledge of myself now, it would have impacted who I was then. But even more so, if I would have even known how well God knows me, it would have changed the way I thought about myself. You see, a knowledge of yourself only can be derived from a deeper knowledge of God. And to know God, you must know who he is, and you must recognize that he knows you perfectly. It wasn't that I denied God's omniscience, a big fancy word that means God knows everything. It's that I didn't understand what it meant for the choices I was making in college. I didn't understand how the all-seeing eye of God ought to have influenced me when I thought no one else was watching. It would have impacted me, I think, in profound ways if I would have understand 
and known who God was and known how much God knows who I am. It was John Calvin who said that a knowledge of self is dependent on a knowledge of God. And I think that's exactly right. If I would have known God's knowledge of me and if I would have known God, it would have helped me understand the one who knows me completely. And there's a chapter in the Psalms that I love and that has become precious to me in these years that I discovered several years ago in studying it and and wish someone would have explained this concept to me. So this morning I invite you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 139. And I wanna talk to you about the God who knows you. The God who knows you. And the aim of this this song is, is exactly what I'm talking about up here. It provides a radically different perspective, one so accurate, one so insightful, you may not be ready for it. The psalmist wants us to know the all-knowing God, the God who knows us. And finding out that knowing God is the key to knowing who you are will impact the way that you live. You see, this is what Calvin said exactly. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, wisdom is what college students need, it's what uh, people in their 30s need, it's what people in their 50s need, wisdom, it's skillful living. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. So Psalm 139 teaches us about God and ourselves and it teaches us something that I hope you'll know and that will impact the way that you think about yourself and the way you think about God's knowledge of you in these most important years of choices and development and actions that will have consequences for the rest of your life. I'm not gonna cover every word of this psalm, but I wanna read through the whole thing at the outset. It says at the heading, to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. 
I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I wanna talk to you about the God who knows you with the goal to be that you would finally come to understand who you are before him. Because you know yourself to a certain degree. But you still don't know, many of you, basic things about yourself, like what your major is this semester. You don't know who you're gonna marry. You don't know how many kids you're gonna have. And these big decisions will define who you are. Uh, You don't know what's ahead in the future. You don't know how many years God will give you. But I'm telling you this morning, and the message of Psalm 139 is, God knows you completely because he made you. And his care for you is evident. And a knowledge of God's knowledge of you will help you think rightly about yourself and help you be informed by God's knowledge and help you gain wisdom. This is a psalm about you, and this is a psalm about God. And what we'll see is that the relationship between you and between God is inextricably linked. But let's first look at this first section. It runs from verses one through six, and let's call it God's inexhaustible knowledge of you. God's inexhaustible knowledge of you. He says, oh, Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. He's speaking of God's awareness of his own soul. God's awareness of him is without qualification. He's been searched and he's been known. The knowledge of God that the psalmist describes, the God who searches and knows in this way, he says it's hard to comprehend. And he's answering the question, who who are you before God? Who who really are you? Because God knows the answer because his knowledge of you is inexhaustible. Look at the way this little section is built. I'm not trying to make it about you. It is about you. It's about you and God. Look at the pronouns and the name of God back and forth. Lord, you search me and known me. You know, when I sit down, when I rise up, my thoughts, my path, you search out, you discern, my lying down, all my ways, my tongue, oh Lord. Back and forth between You and God, between a person, an individual, and the God who made us all. Often, Psalm 139 is cited as an expression of God's omniscience, the fact that God knows everything, and that's true. But this isn't just about God's general knowledge of all things, like how much sand is on the seashore, or how many miles it is to the moon. God is greater than Wikipedia. You can find a lot of stuff out. Even, I found a formula online for how many grains of sand they think are on the world's shores, and God laughs at their math. But it's not about God just knowing lots of facts. This song is about God knowing and interrupted praise, knowing you. 
And when I read this song, it's not just a song of comfort, God's closeness, his proximity. There's something about the knowledge of God, God's inexhaustible knowledge of you that makes the psalmist uncomfortable. There seems to be some discomfort here alongside of any comfort that he draws. He needs to be bothered by this intensely personal knowledge that God has because this inexhaustible knowledge of God is deeply personal. It's also completely comprehensive. Verse two, you know when I sit down and when I get up, even from far away, you understand my motives. One of these words here, uh, translated measure, you, you measure how far away my motives are, uh, is probably the Hebrew word for sifting or winnowing, what they did with wheat. They would rough it up until the good stuff would be separated from the bad stuff. If that's the word the psalmist is using, then he's reminded that God can get down in between all of him. His innermost thoughts and motives, what's valuable and invaluable. This intimate knowledge is presented as immense and also imminent. Infinite yet intimate. And it's simply this. God knows all about you. Look at the verbs of this stanza. Searched and known. Know and understand in verse 2. Comprehend, acquainted, verse 3. Know altogether, verse 4. And then in verse five, a shocking statement, you have hemmed me in, the ESV says. The NAS says enclosed. The Hebrew word means encircled. If you search it down in the Old Testament, it's a word that's often used for a city that's surrounded by an enemy army. See how the psalmist is dealing with God's knowledge, not just from a cheery, happy, positive, God is where you are kind of a way. But there's something discomforting about God's complete, inexhaustible, total, interior and exterior knowledge of you. You see, you can't get away from him because he's encircled you or hemmed you in. You can't run from God. His knowledge is personal and it's entirely comprehensive, it's passive, and it's active. He explains how comprehensive it is by speaking in verse 3 of the path and the lying down. So passive things like sitting and resting, deeds that you do, verse 3, standing up, verse 2, traveling, something more active. And then verse 3 includes all the words that you say, they're included in God's knowledge of you. What you say even before you speak, according to verse three. How can that be? How do those things exist, the unspoken words? Because God's personal knowledge of you includes the thoughts, things that you would never dare say out loud. God knows and God sees them. This should be just a moment where you're reminded that there is no need to withhold anything from God in prayer because there is nothing that can be withheld from God. Even your thoughts, his scrutiny of your most intimate thoughts and desires, he has a total knowledge of even things you don't know about yourself. I mean, as you grow older, you'll, you'll find things about yourself. 
you'll realize, especially when it comes to your skills, what you're good at, what you're not as good at, strengths and weaknesses, and you'll learn to maximize one and minimize the other. But you, you don't know all those things yet, but God does. God knows those things. God knows the things that you've never told anyone. God knows the knowable things, the unknowable things, the things your parents know, the things your siblings know, and the things that they'll never know, and that you'd do anything for them to not find out. He knows you inside and out. He has an exhaustive knowledge of you. He knows all your actions, conduct, the things that you do, sitting or rising. He knows everything you've ever done, everything you ever will do. He is well acquainted with you. If you've ever felt alone, if you've ever felt misunderstood, if you've ever had college angst, we've all had a little college angst, and felt isolated and said, no one understands me. Friend, that's not true. God knows you perfectly. He knows your heart, your character, and I think this is rightly thought of both convicting and comforting. God knows you inside and out. He knows your actions. He knows your conduct. Sir Francis Thompson's poem, The Hound of Heaven, drew from this song. God knows you. He can find you. You can't get away from him. He lays stress in this, this song about God's knowledge of you. No matter where you are, lying down, running, anywhere, God is there. God knows you personally. God knows you thoroughly. There is an ability that we have to deceive ourselves about ourselves. We all know people who don't think accurately about themselves. But God knows you better than you know yourself. Your attitude, your motives behind your actions. Your motives may be mixed. You may be sure what your motivation is entirely at times, but God knows exactly why you do what you do. He knows your words in public and in secret, in your car, away from this campus, and in your dorm. And God knows where you'll be 10 years from now, and 20 years from now, and 30 years from now. Closeness to God is usually seen as a good thing, right? But in this song, it seems questionable. There's a discomfort at God's inescapable knowledge of the psalmist and the speaker saying, you, you surround me. I can't get away. I mean, you're, you're, you're completely encircling me. You, he says, lay your hand upon me. That could be a hand of blessing or a hand of discipline. Either way. He's encircled, so he's protected and he's kept safe, but he's also besieged because he's surrounded and hemmed in by God. So words of protection and words of judgment. I mean, think of those who know you the best, your parents, your siblings, your twin, your best friend. There's things that they don't know about you, but God knows those things exhaustively and completely. And in verse six, David says, this is too wonderful for me. It's a way of saying this is the, this knowledge is surpassing. It's the word that means he's trying to reach it, but he, he can't reach it. 
You see, he's been dug down on, winnowed out by into the very fiber of his being to uncover the truth about himself. God knows him so perfectly, so intimately. This isn't a formal theological point about omniscience. This is about me, my, 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 David says, deep words and thoughts, the scrutiny of God Almighty. There is no privacy. There is no confidentiality agreement with God. There is no private web browser with God. There is nothing about you, nothing you've said, nothing you've thought, nothing you've done that he does not know. And in this sense, God knows you better than you know yourself. So how does that make you feel? Secure? Peaceful? Joyful? Guilty? Well, the song's not done. Verses 7 through 12 is the next section. Let's call it God's inescapable presence with you. Not only is his knowledge of you inexhaustible, verses 1 through 6, but verses 7 through 12 go further and speak of God's inescapable presence with you. He says in verse 7, Where can I escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? This is one of the reasons I don't take this psalm to be a psalm uh, that's immediate application is to comfort those people who fear the lack of God's presence. David is completely aware of God's presence. And his response after this inexhaustible knowledge has been looked at in many dimensions of its prism, after it's been examined thoroughly, his response is to run away. He's not just considering himself wrapped up in the omnipresent arms of God and his omniscience. Instead, he says, where could I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? This is not theological extrapolation about the everywhereness of God. He wants to escape. He feels oppressed by this knowledge. He is simultaneously struck with wonder, amazement, and inability to grasp the fullness of this doctrine. But he is aware of God's presence acutely, and he thinks about what would it take to run. Verses 8 and 9 use two pairs of hypothetical opposites, which include everything in between. He says, in heaven you're there, in Sheol you're there. The heights and the depths, where God is and where I'll be laid in the grave. He's up, he's down, he's everywhere in between. You can't escape his searching gaze. This beautiful poetic imagery of verse 9, take the wings of the morning and go east at the speed of light. If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, way out west in ancient Israel, all the way deep to the unknown seas, David realizes that God is there as well. The polar opposites, the grave in heaven, uh, the east, and where the, the sun rises and, and where the sun sets. The penetrating nature of God's gaze into who you are and where you are. He sees it as invasive and intrusive. God is not respecting your space. You think your dorm mate is a problem? You think their stuff is on your side? You think sharing a bathroom is hard? God's all up in there. (laughs) You know, Job spoke like this as well. He did. Job 7 
He says, what are human beings that you take them so seriously? Job 7, 17, what is man that you make so much of him, that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me or leave me alone till I swallow my spit? Job 7, 19, you didn't know that was in the Bible, huh? If I sin, what do I do to you? Oh, you watcher of mankind. Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Job, in his complaint, has an acute awareness of the omniscience of God. And as he examines his own heart to see if there be any sin in him, the first place his mind goes is that God knows and that he can't even swallow without God being involved and aware of and intimately acquainted with that process. Can a fallen human being ever be fully comfortable in the presence of perfect, holy omniscience? That's why David said it's beyond him that the knowledge was extraordinary. He speaks of escaping from God's presence. It's literally the Hebrew word for face. It was a reminder of, of worship to be in God's presence. It was a metaphor that spoke of, of God's holiness, of proximity to God, and he says he has to run from his face. There's two inferences I see in this. Number one is that we are runners. When sin broke in on God's perfect garden, man took off and hid. And often that's how we respond when we sin. We run and hide. But the second inference is that you can't hide from God. How funny we are that we think there's a place we can go to be alone. Whether you are a Christian or not, God will always be with you. He will either be your greatest source of comfort in this life or he will haunt you with his holiness until you stand before his face in judgment. But you'll never escape from him. Not in heaven and not in hell. You'll either partake of his glory or you will taste his wrath. And everywhere in between he is where you are. Not very Hallmark card. Not very, God's with you, brother. He wants to escape and flee and hide and get away from God's grasp. There's no fugitives from God because of his thorough and complete knowledge of you and his inescapable presence with you. You may try to run, but you can't. Verses 13 to 18 give us our third heading. It's God's intimate creation of you. God's intimate creation of you. We love this passage. We're familiar with it as those who believe in the sanctity of human life. I taught a class at church last night on the incomprehensible evil of abortion, and I was moved by these verses because they're a reminder of that view into that place that was once unknown and sacred, the, the womb of a mother. 
And this verse is a helpful, this set of verses is a helpful section to remind you of God's definition of personhood being that unborn baby belonging to the realm and sovereignty of God. But in the context of this song, God just wants to remind you that he's the one who made you. He owns you. You belong to him. Verse 13, it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I've been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know this very well. He says, God, you're the one who created me. You're the one who knit me together. And it was in those most formative years, even more formative than these years, that God was knitting you together. And David's personhood clearly existed before his birth. But his picture here is a potter making a vessel. A master weaver fashioning them together in in your mother's womb. A perfect combo. You have to remember that God made you. And God makes no mistakes. He crafted you. He crafted you and made you with your limitations, both physical and intellectual. He made you on purpose. If you're in peak physical condition, like me, that wasn't a joke. Like Harry Walls. Or whether you're severely disabled, God made you. Whatever your capacities are, they were established and made by God. He made you on purpose. And David thinks that's remarkable, and we should too. It causes astonishment and worship at God's creativity. Beyond all human powers, no matter what advancement science can make, they're working with things that God created, that he invented. It's his laboratory. The womb is his domain. There's a tapestry here. David speaks of the depths of the earth. It's a metaphor for the dark interior of the mother's womb. Your eyes saw me when I was formless, David said, skillfully put together. That's so fun. I remember when my wife was having our first baby, just watching that little twitch on her stomach turn into a mixed martial arts kind of display. Love it. And this is a view that only God can fully see. Verse 16. God made you with a plan and a purpose. He planned before a single one of your days began. He brought you into being. He put you together. He scheduled your number of days with an agenda, with a purpose. David says, how vast is their sum? They outnumber the grains of the sand. And then he says, when I wake up. Well, what in the world is David doing going to sleep? I mean, he was under the heavy hand of God, and now he says, when I wake up. Sleep makes no sense in context. Sleep in the Psalms is usually a euphemism for death, and I think that's what's happening here. David speaks of when he wakes up. In other words, David going to die is not going to get him out of God's presence. Even death will not 
cause David to be able to escape God's all-seeing, all-knowing eye. That's sobering. Even in the resurrection, God will be there. And he's the one who personally fashioned your existence, scheduled all your days, and the end of your days. And he is the one that you will answer on that great day. And he will still be there like never before. And as always, is this a good thing or is this terrifying to you? Is the presence of God a source of comfort or of anxiety, of joy, of trauma, of confidence, or of fear? From the womb to the grave and beyond the grave, God knows you, he formed you, he created you, your inward parts, he covered you, wove, knitted, marveling over this development of you, this creation of you, this scheduling out of your life. Maybe you've had a very hard life. It was God who laid it out for you. Maybe you've had an easy and comfortable life. It was God who laid out all of those days and for the future of your life. You don't know what's before you. God does because he ordained every single one of them. There is nothing you can do to dodge him. There is nothing you can do to flee from him. There is nothing you can do to hide from him. If I would have understood this in college, I would have known I couldn't keep any secrets from my parents. If I would have understood this in college, I would have known that God knew what I was doing when I thought no one knew. If I would have had an acute awareness of God's intimate knowledge of me, I think I would have been provoked to say, why does he care so much? And like Job, you're asking for good or for bad. This God who embroidered you together, who skillfully wrought you, or the message translation. Yeah, I'm quoting the message at the Master's College. God knows. Which says it this way, you know exactly how it was made bit by bit, how it was sculpted from nothing into something. Friend, whatever something you are, It's because God made you something. How does this end? We've seen God's inexhaustible knowledge of you and God's inescapable presence with you and God's intimate creation of you. All that's left is verses 19 to 24. And it tells us exactly what to do with this kind of thinking. What God insists from you, what God insists from you, and this is this part of the song that's most misunderstood, verse 19, God, if you would only kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men, stay away from me, who invoke you deceitfully, your enemies swear by you falsely, Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns and see if there is any evil way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What is going on here? I mean, we had a lot of cross-stitchable verses. We had some good pro-life stuff. And now, verse 19, 
God, if only you would kill the wicked. You bloodthirsty men, stay away from me. I mean, your memory verse just got messed up, right? I mean, you've heard this as, as a beautiful song Christians love, right? <clears throat> Search me, oh God. <laughs> Siona, I got, I got scared. Stage fright. <laughs> Search me, oh God, and know my heart. Kill the bloodthirsty men. <laughs> How come we never sing that part? I mean, there, there's a contrast here, to say the least. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. What's going on here? It takes an unexpected turn. David asked God to do away with the previously unmentioned wicked ones. And then the the psalmist in verse 21 says, Oh Lord, you know I hate those who hate you and loathe your adversaries. The statement of, of covenant loyalty to God. Why does his heart and mind go here? You see, David's mind settles in a recognition that God's knowledge of him is a fact. And then he realizes that there are many who not only are discomforted by this because of their sin, like his people can be, but there are those who are in flagrant defiance of him. And that is even more perplexing to him. I mean, those who seek God, those are who are his children, feel both the heaviness and the joy of the presence of God. We feel both the comfort and the conflict of having a God who knows us exhaustively and completely and intimately. But there are thousands of people who not only do not know that this is true, but they deny it. Do you see how even a doctrine like the omniscience of a holy God can provoke you towards your view of lost people? And for David, his enemies, those who sought to hurt God's people, to kill God's people, he turns this song into a psalm of imprecation, a psalm that vividly calls out for judgment from God to the wicked who have done great evil to God's people. If God knows us so well, if he intimately created us, then why do we have people trying to destroy us? Why is the world turns against us? This is a familiar feeling to us, isn't it? If God is sovereign, if God is all-knowing, if he's in control of it all, and if he knows us perfectly, why is life hard? Why are wicked people surrounding me? David is asking the same question that you are asking. But David responds in two ways, and it's the exact ways that God insists that we respond to his perfect knowledge of us. And the first is verse 19, in total Allegiance. How do you respond of God's knowledge of you? He knows your deeds, words, thoughts, everywhere present. Well, you respond with total allegiance, verse 19. If you would only kill the wicked, this is not the psalmist's enemies. These are God's enemies. They're the wicked. They're the bloodthirsty. They're the ones who use his name falsely. They're the blasphemers. They're those who hate you, who rebel against God. 
and he prays for judgment, and it's not a prayer of self-interest. It's a prayer of zeal for God and zeal for the things of God and the people of God. It's the same emotion that overcame Jesus in John 2 when he turned the tables on the money changers and he drove them out to fulfill what was written. Zeal for his father's house will consume him. David had zeal. He was enraged. It ate him up. What ate him up? Well, the greatest evil in the world ate him up. And it wasn't human trafficking, and it wasn't genocide, and it wasn't abortion, and it wasn't same-sex marriage. You see, the greatest evil in the universe is that Jesus Christ is not worshiped as he ought to be worshiped. That is a travesty. That is a cosmic problem. And David realizes the existence of the wicked alongside of the perfect knowledge of God is a disparity. It is a massive problem. And David responds by announcing which side he's on. Though a sinful man will always feel the searching eye of God with both comfort and conflict, we will be quick if we belong to God to declare no matter of his knowledge of us, no matter what we have done, that we're on his side. And that's what David is doing here. He's saying that he's on the side of God. He wants to be with the righteous, not with the oppressors, not with God's enemies. He wants to lay claim on the virtue of his relationship to God. Where does he get this kind of loyalty and devotion from? Well, he learned it from God himself. The God who expressed deep loyalty to Israel, who said, I'll be a foe to your foes. He responds like God responds. His awareness of you, whether it provokes you to fear or comfort, needs to promote loyalty in you. Loyalty to God and God alone, the one who knows you, the one who is everywhere, and the one who you will face when you are resurrected from the dead. Total allegiance, verse 19. A second and final response, total submission. And this is the verse we all love. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There was evil outside with God's enemies and David knew as good as anyone that there's evil within us and he lays himself wide open. Why? Well, I doubt any of you are looking for exploratory surgery this morning, and if you are, I'm not the man for the job. But if you were in need of exploratory surgery in order to save your life, you would be glad for the day you met that surgeon. This is a spiritual version of that. David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Realizing that God already knows all of it, David wants God to have an open invitation. Young people, if you were to open your heart up like this to God and to God's people, you would receive so much wisdom in these most formative years. You would receive so much blessing and so much benefit to lay oneself wide open it could save your life. And David pulls it all together and says, lead me in the way everlasting. 
He's been searched in verse one and he wants to be continually searched. He's known and he wants to be continually known. He's been seen by God and he asks God to continually see him. His fear is now gone and he perceived and has experienced that God is leading him and he wants to be continually led. All prior anxiety has been replaced by a desire to follow the God who knows him. The God whose fullest revelation of himself is the Lord Jesus Christ who sits at God's right hand, who will be there when you are resurrected and who will greet you and who will meet you, the one who created you, the one who will raise you up because he first rose up and he knows you. Will you respond to him in fierce loyalty, in total allegiance and total submission? Will you hate what he hates and love what he loves? And will you sweetly surrender your life to Jesus in these years and allow God to scrutinize your desires, your thoughts, your intentions, your motives, and to transform you into the follower of Jesus he desires each one of you to be? Pray with me. Father, thank you for your intimate knowledge of us. We're grateful that you know us completely, exhaustively, that we cannot run from you, O oh God, no matter how our sinful inclination draws us to. We know, God, that you made us and that we belong to you. And God, we hear the call for loyalty, the call for allegiance, the call for submission. May we stop fooling ourselves, knowing that we'll never fool you. And may we be completely devoted to following after your ways. In the matchless name of all-knowing Jesus, amen.